When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Storytime 139. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon in situ, sitting on a wooden park bench in the backyard on one of those sunny days. It's at the first, that's the second day of uh, summer officially. We're into June. Winifred May is rolling around in the paddling pool with some sort of bubble concoction, being idyllic and everything is, is as it should be. Yep, we had this uh, bench made for us when we moved in here. Well, Rachel's dad remodelled it at least, so this has been a, a part of our backyard since we moved to, to North London, which is nice to record the podcast out here. Rich and I, when you were away, um, when you were in, um, out of uh, connectivity last year, recorded a a podcast out here, so I thought this would be quite nice on a, on a lovely summer's afternoon. I don't think it's technically summer yet in the UK. I think we, we, we move into that a little bit later. You it's do that done. equinox nonsense yeah, where you're like, the, oh, it's the 23rd of June or uh, something. Well, the longest no, no, day no, no. being the 21st. No, 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 no. It's not about where the sun is. It's about where we arbitrarily make numbers <laughs> and names for things, and we say the start of this month is... This, these are the summer months, and I'm not going to have any of this summer keeps going into September. It's very stuff. Australian, isn't it? So no. three, months, three, months, three, three months, three months, three months, three months, three months. That's summer, months. and that's winter. No dicking about. <laughs> we have regularity of season. None of this continental business, hard and fast. <laughs> none, of this, none of this pastries for breakfast stuff, cornflakes. <laughs> that's all I'm interested in. Uh, it's the 139th edition of this history show. It might be that you're finding us for the first time having listened to our Richard Gould interview the other day. I think well, we would have recruited a few new fans. Well, I say fans, listeners out of that. If this is your first radio, as far as story time is concerned, we tell the stories of the history of the game through this podcast. We don't muck around with much else. We we have numbers that come in, and Jeff, you can explain how that works. Yep. Uh, and then we, we tell a series of tales that relate to numbers sent through by our, our mighty patrons. And we get weird. You know, things get pretty weird pretty often on story time. Um, strange coincidences happen, parallels, yep. um, things that link to other things that shouldn't, that circle back around and hook up with something else. And it's all um, the, the arbitrariness of timing. We, yep. we do the numbers in the order they come in and sometimes magic happens. It's like the parallel universes in sliders. Mm -hmm. It's like when Jerry O'Connell... Uh, tries to open the gate, has a brief window of time. Mm -hmm. If it's squeaky, it's his universe. If it's not squeaky, it is not. Mm. That is the rule of thumb, and, and so it goes for us. Our, our parallel universes, uh, the ways in which they intersect and intertwine, that, that's what is the magic of our weekend program, which is ever so different to our weekly show, which is all about the issues of the game and our daily programs. We spend 20 minutes talking about the cricket as quickly and exhaustively as we can. Well, this, we just luxuriate in numbers and mm -hmm. names and, and moments in time. Well, shall we? Shall we do it? Let's do Let's it. Let's do a little bit of Winnie. Mm, not play. 
pledge. No pledge. <laughs> She's like looking that at you saying, what on earth is going on? She's yeah. wearing a Legionnaire's hat. Yeah. I think Legionnaire's hats get a bad name because of Legionnaire's disease. Yeah. I think if Legionnaire's disease wasn't a thing, more yep. people would wear the Legionnaire's hat. Theory. And maybe if the French Foreign Legion hadn't just gone about like <laughs> killing everybody <laughs> ad hoc. For... I just think the hat is so practical. Yeah. We had to wear Legionnaire's hats at primary right. school. You probably did as well. There's no link between the disease and the hat. Of course there's not. <laughs> and, and the apostrophe is at a different place as well. But I, I simply stand by, it gets a bad rap um, because of... The disease. There was a political scandal around Legionnaires' disease at some point, wasn't there? In I feel the, like. um, in the, the cooling systems of hospitals, if oh, I recall right. correctly. Yeah. It was usually in, it was something to do with air conditioning vents. Um, and you don't need a sun hat if you're inside an air conditioning right. vent. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it all links together. Or maybe your daughter will join the French Foreign Legion. Could I, happen. I don't know. Yeah. Well, her mum speaks French, at least a little bit. Yep. So, uh, you know, can't rule it out. Can't rule it out. Yep. We're not playing Probably rule. can rule it out, truth be told, but... <laughs> We are now playing the rule-in, rule-out game. Now, no pledge works like this. People listen to the show. Some of them take it upon themselves to become supporters of the show in a practical sense in that they fund the program, and they do that by sending in contributions to our central pool, our, um, our I don't know, our, our reserve bank of the final word. <laughs> and those contributions are not normal amounts. They're not the amount you would expect as something to, to cost in a shop. Yep. I don't know, maybe you would. Things in shops cost all kinds of weird prices. But these numbers... Five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. Everything was 99. <laughs> Dimmies and Forges, Spotlight Tail. <laughs> Robert Dippy and Domenico, former guests of the final word. <laughs> former guests Look it up. Final word. Um, if only we could get Ken Bruce on the show <laughs> and find out if he has or has not gone completely <laughs> crazy. John, was it crazy Ron, which is the one who crazy John's funded mobile the... Phones. Who funded the Chappelle Corby? It was Crazy Ron Bashir, wasn't it? Probably, yeah. Yeah, who was quite, um, yeah. quite invested in Chappelle Corby Cra- getting off. Crazy John's. Well, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. After a long time in prison, I guess, whatever it takes. Yeah, Crazy, just. crazy John's uh, bought it. Don't even listen to my bloody evidence. Bought the naming rights to a stadium. <laughs> this is what my Mercedes Corbin, Corby impersonation. Uh, well, I, I bet that Mercedes, um, as a luxury auto brand, were really glad to have that association. <laughs> I'm sure they were absolutely pumped for, for that whole that whole period of time. So, right, those people send in a number. The number relates to cricket. We don't know how necessarily, although occasionally they kind of tell us because they just want us to tell the story. <laughs> Girls just want to have fun. I, I, I just want to soft launch something here. I mentioned it when back announcing the Gould interview the other day. If you become a patron, if you work with us, we're not far away from having an ad-free option for the programmatic ads that you hear on the show. Just wanted to drop that in. If you're thinking about it, because um, we're making so many programs, if, if you were... Uh, hoping to listen to loads of us over the next two months and wanted to do so without ads, that is not far away. So, you know, hit the button and all the rest. Yeah, it's in the it's in the pipeline. So it goes like this. Um, Chris Arkell is our first nerd pledger this week. Uh, he has sent through £2.50 and it comes mm. with a clue, which which is a very helpful clue. It, it is. 250 GBP. Chris says, my new pledge is the career runs of a Sussex player, but we'd really like you to tell the story of the first timed out before that was a mode of dismissal. You need to go to Sussex versus Somerset, May 1919 at Taunton. It's another tied match with a bizarre ending. Player is Harold Haygate. So it's very specific here from yep. Chris and lots of bits and bobs here that I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, I like go. that it didn't take me six weeks of <laughs> tracking down a number to, to reach Harold Haygate, who would have taken some finding because he's a pretty obscure character in the history of cricket. He did indeed make 250 runs in his first-class career, playing six matches for Sussex. Well, he made them in five matches for Sussex because, as you'll find out, he doesn't make any in match number six. 
Strange career. Okay, so the 1890s, he, he's growing up. He goes to Epsom College, which weirdly is established as a boarding school for the children of dead doctors. Oh. <laughs> How specific can you get? Yeah. Some kind of benevolent organisation was like, well, we have to look after all the medical men who've become uh, infirm or who've died in, in service and who have families who need help. I guess it's kind of like the school they set up for the dead Kennedys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they used to steal people's mail. Population just keeps rising as well at that one. Now, this school eventually just sort of morphs into your general posh public school, you know, in the British uh, sense of the public school, which means that the public's not allowed to go there. That's kind of what it is these okay. days. It has a massive, you know, clock tower and a church spire and all the rest of that kind of nonsense um, but that's that's sort of where he starts out by the age of 18 he gets picked for his first game for Sussex this is 1903 they're playing against Somerset some big names going around there he's playing against Len Braund and Sammy Woods in the opposition Harold's captain is Ranjit Sinji for his first first class match pretty pretty good one of the openers. he might come up later on Oh, mate, mate. He might come up later on, Rajasinghe. I don't okay. know. Okay. You'll find out. One of the openers is C.B. Fry. Might have heard of him. Um, invented uh, putting chips in oil. Incredible, incredible <laughs> work from him. Now, Harold back Haygate. Backflipped onto the mantelpiece. Backflipped onto the mantelpiece. No, he jumped backwards in a standing position onto the mantelpiece. Right, Wasn't that yes, it? Yes, yes, that's it. Which is even more weird in a way. Harold Haygate, he's our guy. He bats down at number five. He makes 26. That's okay. And then they're only chasing 60 in the fourth inning. So as a kind of charity thing, he gets sent up to number three to bat with CB Fry. Makes it duck, but whatever. You know, they're going to win anyway, so it's fine. And he plays one more match in that season, which interestingly is alongside his brother Reginald. So Reggie bats at six in that game. Harold bats at seven. They share a big partnership of four runs before Harold is out for a duck again. Sussex are all out for 47 in that innings, so, you know, you can't really blame the 18-year-old. They've conceded 403 and then got bowled out for 47. <laughs> so um, in the follow-on, Harold makes 10, Reginald makes 5. Um, they lose by a million runs. Reginald goes on to have quite a long career with Sussex, plays 73 matches over about a decade. Harold doesn't play again for two years until 1905. Now he's opening the batting, right? So he makes 40 and 24 against Somerset, yep. which includes a good opening stand in a tight run chase in the fourth innings. They win it by two wickets, so he's made a contribution. Then he makes 80 and 68 against Kent. The 68 is not out. And he plays one more game for the season, which is a couple of low scores against Cambridge University. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Bullshit <laughs> game doesn't count. And that's it. He doesn't play again for 14 years. 14? So he's like he's made some runs in those games. Like he's done okay, you would have thought. But so I don't I know. suppose five of those years are war affected. Uh, war affected. But this is so 1905 to 1914. He's not getting picked. Either. No, sure, right. And so he's made runs in those couple of games before he's been left out and then that's it they've got this all-rounder in the first instance called Charles Smith who plays for a long time and has a career batting average of 19 and for some reason they put him up to open the batting for a chunk of that season a little bit an amateur I'm assuming yeah, yeah. For, he was he definitely was and then CB Fry ends up back at the top of the order by the end it's like they're just giving everyone a go but they they don't give this Haygate kid Another shot. And, you know, and then the war starts. Maybe he's just devastated by the fact that cricket's out of his life. I don't know. But he joins up, goes to war. Couldn't find anything about his war service. The UK war records are not helpful. Like the Australian War Memorial records are outstanding. And, and I was wondering this because you, you went through the war records for hmm. an Australian cricketer recently and were able yeah. to do so fairly easily. I've been thinking about starting the process of doing my family's war records and they're all from the British Army. But yeah. I haven't sort of, I, I had a bit of a, you know, poke around the internet and there's not much doing. You've no. got to, and even if you pay for the subscription service yes. 
I think that gets you effectively a ticket to the to the actual physical archive. Right, and and also that um, it, they have different branches of the service. The records are split across different agencies and right. that kind of thing. There's no centralisation of it. There's certainly no easy access to a da- database. And I think a lot of the records were paper records that got destroyed during the Second World War as well. So there's a fair bit that's missing. Yep. But yeah, it's like, oh, if it's a non-commissioned officer, their records are here. If it's a commissioned officer, it's here. If it's the light horse, it's here. It's like, fucking okay. sort your shit out, Britain. <laughs> you know, help us out. The Australian War Memorial. Well, they might need to take down the big Ben Robert Smith picture. Yeah, but, um, and all but, the kit, right? That's the new... Yeah. That's the new um, uh, dividing line in the culture war on, on Twitter, I've realised if you uh, if you if you think it's all a stitch up, then you, you know like which of their there are conspiracy theorists. Oh yeah. If you think it's already. all a stitch up, it is the most elaborate stitch up in <laughs> yes. the history of stitch yeah, ups. I think he's been stitched up, including yeah. the bit where he started the court case that brought everything into yeah, the open. Yeah. It's like oh yeah, he was stitched up by being forced to uh, start a defamation action that revealed all of the things that he had. Done. I'm sure. I'm sure the Victorian branch of the Liberal Party will pass some motion. Yeah. Um, to this effect, given right. the absolute nutters who are running the show in there at the moment, I see that. Um, Tim Smith's on the cusp of returning to the state parliamentary Liberal Party. He's just, he's I'm, just, not, I'm not kidding. He just drove through the yeah, front just, doors of just, Parliament. Yeah, the door, he just drove to. There's a, a seat that's going to become vacated, and he said he's um, open for being pre-selected. They will pre-select him with gusto. Tim Smith too, too Tim fast, Smith. too furious. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So I couldn't find anything about his war records. That's the point. But in theory, from the bits and pieces that may be apocryphal, you can find that he suffered some sort of injury, maybe to his leg near the end of the war. He also had rheumatism, which is like swelling of the joints, which they put down to being in the trenches. But it's part of that kind of bullshit thing you get in those days where they're always like, oh, he had a lung problem from being too close to pinwheels at the Blackpool <laughs> Pier. You know, like they'll always put the cause of the disease down to something that... Although, although that could easily be a, a, an extension of trench foot or something like that, I suppose, given yeah. a part of the body. Who knows? So anyway, the war ends in late 1918 and they decide to get a 1919 season happening. You know, it's a pretty short turnaround to try to get cricket back on. I think that's the shortest wisdom, isn't it? The 1919 edition, because 1918 has so little to report on. Mm. Even schools cricket stopped that year I think it was just a a vacant season so yeah that I think the 1919 mm. wisdom is the one that's the most the most expensive or one of the most expensive if you're a collector you can confirm right. this but I read this somewhere of late so um you, Richard Gould talked about military men coming out of the service and going yeah. to start cricket clubs or work at cricket clubs yeah. well that's that's what happens at Sussex the secretary is Major Bill Sarrell who's got nothing else to do now that the war's over time to go and play some cricket And they have this problem that there are very few players available. You know, lots of cricketers have been killed in the war. They're scattered around. A lot of them are still enlisted. They haven't been released from the services yet. They don't get out for another year or so. They're not demob. Yeah. So so they'll kind of grab anyone who's around. Sussex field 36 players that season, which is their most, still their most ever, you know, whoever's around. And in the opening match of the season, they're so short that they ask Harold Haygate what he's up to. <laughs> what, what doing? How old is he? He's like 35 at that point, yeah. I guess. So he goes, all right, well, if you're short, I'll play. And they're playing against Somerset again. So he's played Somerset like three times out of his five matches mm-hmm. or four out of six, I think, at this point, something ridiculous like that. Somerset are a team that includes a guy called Arthur Plantagenet Francis Cecil Somerset. He's literally named after the club, which is great. They've also got a keeper called Robert Alexander Tamblin Miller, so Rat Miller on the scorecard, <laughs> which I like. He's the keeper. Harold Haywood is crocked. He's never bowled in his career. He doesn't bowl in this match. He can't even field much. He's just in too bad physical condition. So basically, like halfway through the first day when they're fielding, he goes off and he's like, yeah, lads, can't, can't do this. He 
comes out to bat in their first innings at number 11. He's like, all right, I'll give it a go. Um, and he makes a duck, but, you know, he, he does his bit. And then by the second day of the test, he's just sitting in the stands watching and someone else is subfielding for him. You know, it hasn't worked. They thought he, he thought he'd see if he could give it a go and it hasn't worked out. And this is a crazy match, right? So Somerset uh, start off with the Ripon twins opening the batting for 66. Love that. Twin brothers at the top of the order. George Cox takes five wickets. Somerset make 243. Sussex reply with 242. Okay. Oh, very close on the first innings. Uh, Maurice Tate, who we've talked yeah. about a lot on this show, top yeah. scores with 69. Nice. Um, and Harold Haywood coming in to make naught at the bottom of the order still helps them add five more runs. So it's a useful contribution, even though right. he doesn't score. Vital contribution to the result in the end. Somerset, second time around, get dicked again by Cox, who adds four more wickets to his five. Bowls him out for 103. So they need 104 to win. So there's 105, 105 to win, to win for Sussex. Right. And at one point they're 48 for six, but then there's a big partnership between the opener, Herbert Wilson, the number eight, Henry Roberts. They put on 55 together. So Sussex... They're 103 for six. They need two runs to win, four wickets in hand, and then Roberts gets bowled by one of the Ripon twins. Next ball, George Stannard, out first ball, bowled for a golden duck. In the next over, Wilson, the opener, scores a single but can't get back on strike. Or, well, would be, would be the winning run at that point. So scores a level. Okay. Um, Rat Miller, the keeper, mm. he's on strike. He chips up a catch. He's caught off one of the Jack Whites, the many first-class cricket Jack Whites <laughs> that we've talked about. They've lost three for one. They're nine wickets down. And Haygate's been off the field for most of the match. And so the umpires just go to tip the bales off. And then like a shout comes out from the pavilion saying, wait, hey, wait, 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 hey. hang on, hang on. He's going to come out and bat. And they're like, what? And they wait for a while and they wait for a bit longer. And eventually he comes stumbling down the steps and he's still in his civvies <laughs> and he's putting his pads on over the top. <laughs> so he's wearing a suit. He's wearing a blue suit and he's getting the leg pads on and he's got a bat under his arm. And he's like, yeah, 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 I'm coming, I'm coming. And he's crook. He's, he's in very bad shape, but he's trying to drag himself onto the field. And he sort of gets himself past the boundary line and then he's trying to do his straps up and all the rest of it and it's taking a while and, and the minutes tick by and eventually the Somerset players are like, come on, this is bullshit. It's been like five minutes now. And they appeal. Jack White appeals for the fact that he's taken Time too down. long to come to the middle. And the umpire says, you are correct under the laws. Uh, if you're appealing, I have More to give it out. More than minutes, isn't it, from the moment of the wicket? Is it the At moment of the batter? At that point, it was batter, two, two minutes. And I think from the way it's interpreted, and, and um, Brian Kane can clarify this, or Brian, mm -hmm. it's three minutes from when you cross the rope as the out batter is when the clock starts. Maybe. I think it's in, something in like In those that. days, it was two minutes, but timed out didn't exist as a dismissal. So, so timed out only comes oh, right. into the laws in 1980. So what does this mean? What, so how this, do they, how do they, what's the two minutes in reference to? Which law are they acting on? Well... It's, what so, mode of dismissal is it? So it's not a mode it's of dismissal in its own right. It's just that you are absent. You're deemed oh, to be right, absent. Right, okay. And so in this case on the scorecard, he's recorded as absent hurt, which is what you'd normally have if, if a player's been, you know, had their arm broken sure, in yep. the first innings and they're not batting in the second or whatever it is. So that's what he's down on the scorecard as absent hurt at number 11 with the match tied at 104 for nine. But there was quite a lot of dismay afterwards about Somerset having disrespected an injured war veteran and saying that they should have accorded him the respect to give him the time to get to the crease if he was willing to oh. gamely come out and play. And so they copped quite a lot of backlash about it and Wisden wasn't happy about it and a lot of the newspapers weren't happy about it. And the MCC was asked for clarification in time-honoured fashion and said, well, according to the laws, that was correct. He'd taken too long to come to the middle. But, you know, maybe they, maybe they could have given him time to see if Harold could make another duck that helped add 
a run for his team. What a great story. So we've got a tied match. Mm-hmm. We've got a timed out that wasn't timed out. Mm-hmm. And what was the other part of the clue at the start? It was uh, there was another lovely hook to it. Oh yeah, well it was to oh, do. Oh, the bizarre ending. Yep. Yeah, and the, and the belated return to first class. The cricket belated return to first class cricket after fourteen years That's for a guy who was obviously not fit to play. So, Chris Arkell, you, you've totally embraced the spirit of the show that's about to come. I sense we're going to spend quite a bit of time uh, around the earliest, early, earliest, the earliest twentieth century, the earliest twentieth century. The ear- we're going to spend a lot of time in early twentieth century times, maybe uh, through the course of the next little while. So, uh, my first number is Chris Dobbins Dobbo, eleven forty. Have you just made that up? Yep. Yep. Yeah, if, you, if your last name's Dobbins, you are a Dobbo. Okay. Every person I've played football or cricket with, with that last name is Dobbo. Eleven forty okay. AUD. I have Dobbo the Elf. Now, there's a clue actually for this as well, Jeff. So you can you can tend to that. He only says this. I just have so many numbers that I want to throw at the final word. Uh, I figure I now have three outstanding numbers in the works. Well, it's not really a clue. That just says that he likes this number. Yeah. Okay. And so other numbers. I'm going to confess here, Chris, that I've intentionally not done. One one four zero in the end, but I hope I hope you like where I end up with it because it's a nice chunky number. It's got lots of different ways of interpreting it. Uh, I thought about batting averages, anyone with sort of one hundred and fourteen on the dot in a series, perhaps. Um, but through that process of searching, it took me to a page I'd never been to before. Highest Sheffield Shield averages ever. Not the qualified averages with the minimum twenty innings. Mm. Not you know not the one you'd expect to see with Bradman sitting atop it and. By the way, quite right. The qualified, but also specifically the shield. What's his shield? Because yeah. I know his first class is ninety-five. But well, what's his shield? Bradman averaged one hundred and ten point two. He played sixty-two shield matches between nineteen twenty-seven and nineteen forty-nine, and hit thirty-six centuries. So better than a century every other game. Which again, this kind of reinforces what a freak display that's, was. That's one point seven two matches per, per 100. 100 in shield cricket you know <laughs> so and, and according to this this page as well he struck at 95 i don't believe that because we know that a lot of professional games or first class games didn't have the balls counted mm. even test cricket you know so i wouldn't uh, rely be. some of them did so it might just be where data's available that that's it i think it's 95 strike rate for those games that they can tell and they up. tended to like they'd sometimes count them for the fast if someone was really caning it then they might count the the balls face for one player they wouldn't do it for everybody but you know like you sometimes see it on a scorecard where the data is available for one person but not for everyone else because for whatever reason the scorer has like that first ball duck for instance in the Harold Haygate game that's recorded as one ball faced (laughs) because obviously in the match report they've said he was out first ball so you can put it on the scorecard as he only faced one ball it's a gripe of mine this like how hard was it to count balls I mean you do it in the most basic of cricket now because obviously all you're doing is tallying the dots as a on a but it just didn't matter. It wasn't, it no, wasn't sure. considered to be important. Minutes was the reference point. I get yeah. that. But, yeah, it feels like that at some point in – even Charlotte Edwards, right? Um, mm. Charlotte Edwards started her international career, I think, in 1997, 96, 97, something like that. There are games she played for England that don't have the balls counted mm. even then. Anyway, a digression early on here. So this is kind of like the Andy Gantom list. This is the Curtis Patterson list. This mm-hmm. is the unfiltered shield numbers that don't have any, you know, 20 innings reference point. The late night ads. You know, late night ads. Lonely? Call me for unfiltered <laughs> shield numbers. So, so Bradman isn't on top. Bradman isn't on top. 110.2 doesn't get him over the line. He is on this ad. <laughs> uh, and whilst there isn't a 114, which would have been nice, would have been really, really nice if there was a 114, there is a 112. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought I have to tell this story. So, Chris... Dobbo, I hope you enjoy. 112 from a bloke I'd never heard of. Harry 
Owen Rock. Harry Rock? Great name. I think I have heard of Harry Rock, but I don't remember anything about him. The Doc Rock. Dr. Owen Rock is how he went. Dr. Rock. Rock. (laughs) Get your rocks off with the Doc. (laughs) That is late night stuff. Dr. Rock, get ready. Flies past my nose. Now, the first thing I thought when seeing his, his record was that he was 19 in 1915. I thought, oh, this will be what it is. He'll have died. He'll have gone to war and died. But that's not it either. The sample size is really small, and, and I'll explain how that came to pass. First of all, he, he was the son of Claude, who played for Tasmania in Cambridge, smart dude. And the doc, Dr. Owen, was at university studying medicine in the early 1920s and making loads of runs for the club side university. But the New South Wales team was so strong that he couldn't get a sniff. Um, he did play against the touring English in 1920-21, but that wasn't a first-class fixture. That was a, a non-major match or a minor match, as they, they called it at that time, over 100 years ago. Then Wait, this they is, called non-major things minor things? Yeah, I know, what right. kind of linguistic craziness <laughs> is this? Uh, I, I stumbled there, clearly. Uh, <laughs> but um, there, there's this explosion for him in uh, 1924, which leads towards him getting an opportunity when the Test players are away. So November 1924, he's picked to open the batting against South Australia um, at the SCG. He's 27, I think, at this point. And on debut makes 127 in just 140 minutes and then 27 not out in the second dig to win the game. But the test players return next week and he's dropped. So 127 and 27 not out on debut, having to wait all this time to get in the New South Wales side and dropped immediately. And this is a pattern that would continue. This is the origin story. This is like a villain, superhero villain origin story. Like this is what made him so angry that he became Dr. Rock. <laughs> well, there is there, well, it does inform the decision he ultimately makes. So the test players have buggered off again in time for a game against Victoria, also at the SCG, later in the season, later in 24-25. And he makes 235. Again, I Opening, puts on 268 with Alan Kipax for the third wicket after a 235 run opening stand. There wouldn't be too often in professional cricket or first class cricket where a player's been involved in two double century stands no. at the same time. Someone might be able to check that out for us, but that was the case for, for Dr. Rock here. And Don Blackie and Stork Hendry were in that Victorian attack, so a couple of test players, and not, not, not for nothing. It wasn't a, wasn't a glorified club game or anything like that. He made 51 in the second innings of that match as well, top scoring. So after two games, He's made 441 runs at 147. Next match, down in Melbourne. No, he's hooked again. Herbie Collins is back. Warren Bardsley's back. So they drop him a second time. So, you know, he's made two centuries in two matches, 441 runs in two goes, top scored in three of the four innings, and he's inexplicably left out again. He was listed a couple of weeks on from that. Uh, to play in a tour match against the English, who were there in 24-25, but he pulled out unexpectedly. There were reports that he had admitted himself it was because of a university exam, and I, right. I kind of get it, right? He's like, yeah. well, you know... Uh, he was uh, suffering from a bad case of fuck this. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> like, you know, what's my day job going to be? I'm going to be a doctor. I'm not going to get fucked around any longer. But the next season rolls around, and he subjects himself to this again. A non-shield game against WA, but a first-class game nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, WA. In fact, was it even a first-class game? It was first-class. It was first-class, right, yeah. I know this. You'll find out why I know this when I talk through um, some Clary Grimmett stuff later on. Got it. So, of course, opens the batting, makes 151. So three matches... Three matches for three centuries. That's at the very start of the season. And the newspapers can't believe that they've unearthed this gem, New South Wales. Where's he yeah. come from? You know, he's been playing club cricket and studying medicine. That's where he's that's where he's come from. It did prompt selection in the Australian eleven versus the rest in December nineteen twenty five, which
which according to reports was, which is seen as a bit of a, a trial game for the 1926 Ashes Tour. That is to say, the form, because remember there's so little shield cricket, mm. that, you know, a game where the best players are brought together will have a big effect on the selection for the biggest squad that goes to England. He made 12 and 35, opening for the rest with Warren Bardsley, which I thought was interesting. You know, maybe they were competing for one spot. We know that Bardsley's career went off a cliff post-World War One. We, we spoke last week about his um, twin 235s in 1920, but or might, might have been 1921, actually. But to this point, mm. he's 42, Bardsley, and yes, he finished his career spectacularly leading the Aussie team in, in 26 in England with the 100 at Lords and so on. But it, it must have been in jeopardy whether he would make that last trip, and it might have been the case that Owen Rock was, was in the frame. But mm. um, Bardsley makes 54 in the second innings, whereas our man made 12 and 35. First time around, he was bowled by Jack Gregory, and the second time around, he was stumped by Oldfield from the bowling of Maley. So three pretty useful cricketers to dismiss uh-huh. him in those two innings. Just then, didn't want it enough. 12 and 35, what's this? <laughs> then the most staggering thing plays out of all the times he's been dropped. He's punted again from the New South Wales side. He's just played in the rest team. He's made 100 against WA in the previous game. We know what he did in the previous summer. He's left out uh, for the South Australia game in Adelaide. Uh, the Sydney referee, a newspaper at the time, described it as absolutely indefensible um, and criticised the selectors for being too, um, too wedded to their old blokes. He got back for two games against Victoria later in the season. But again, the test players were there. So they dropped him down at number seven. And in both of these games against the Vicks, they only batted once and made in excess of 700. So by the time he was coming in, barely anything to do. Made 81 and 39. So he still made a contribution. But yep. by now he's basically 30. And in the April of that year, in 1926, he'd finished all of his medical qualifications. He was offered a job up in Newcastle and he took it. Why would he stick with cricket at this point? Oh, yeah. Fair fucks. Like, it's the right, he's made the right call, clearly. And... If you look at his overall first-class record, you include the WA game and the rest versus the Australia 11 games. Nine innings, 758 runs, three centuries, 94.75. But in the Shield, just four matches, 560 runs at 112 on the dot. Better than Bradman, so not quite 114, but I thought a story worth sharing about a man who deserved better. Dr. Rock, <laughs> Dr. Owen Rock. 1140, well, let's call it 1120, Chris Dobbins. Dr. Rocktopus. <laughs> Going for you. That is that is outstanding. I, yeah, it, it it vaguely rings a bell. Like I I remembered the name and I do remember something about him making a lot of runs, but I didn't realise it was that many that consistently. If Dobbo wants us to do an eleven forty next time around, I can tell you all about the eighty nine ninety West Indies England Test at Sabina Park, which mm. Daniel and I went into in quite a bit of depth. On in the on TV episode of Calling the Shots, that's a that's a transformative series in television broadcasting history. It's the first time that England are beamed back home via satellite mm-hmm. TV, via pay TV, and that and that test was the first of the series, and that is Test Match One One Four Zero. So, if you want, we can do that next week. Hi, I'm Ian Chapel. You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Next pledge is Haley Fuller. It is. He's been leading your marathon charge with uh, eight pounds eighty-one. And Haley's got a clue for you. She says, "In the men's game, the pledge shall not measure less than eight point eight one." And I should say, Jeff, that I know Haley, having spoken to her about this last week, doesn't often listen to our weekly programs. Like she's not like a huge cricket nut or anything like that, mm-hmm. but she does listen to every story time because yes. she likes the yarns. And I- I'm gonna. That, that's the frame I'll leave you with. Okay, so Haley and her partner, Matt Jones, basically Matt would listen to the show so often that she started listening in the background and got interested in the numbers. Because he used to wear his headphones mm-hmm. listening to our programs and she would say, 
come on, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, just put it on, yeah. on the speaker. And that's how she found us. Exactly. And also, Matt and Haley came to the rescue for a couple of days when we had, <laughs> a, had an accommodation snafu at the last minute and they said, come and stay in our spare room. So I did go and stay with them, which does make this look a bit dodgy that her numbers popped up on the show this week. <laughs> it is not my friend the publican just won a £300 million contract to provide a <laughs> PPE to the UK government sort of thing. Oh, when the Hawthorne player who was drawing the raffle um, drew out his best mate who yep. would win the car or whatever it was back in the early 2000s, yeah. which was, was quite controversial. Right, yeah. But so it, it, I, I acknowledge... That there could be suggestions of impropriety. It is not the case. This is simply what the list threw up. You know, I could I could show people the list if they really need to know. <laughs> this this was coming, um, and and it, it's just coincidence that it came through this week. You have my word on that. Now, Haley, based on previous pledges, I'm going to try to say this delicately. Had had an interest in balls. Um, She's our balls correspondent. She's the one that sent us to the ball pit. Yes, in oh, Edinburgh, yeah. and she's found another one in London that she's insisting that we go to with the same theme, okay. same place. Um, so she's our, uh, yes, she, she said it herself on Sunday night. She's the final word ball correspondent. And, yeah, a previous pledge involved old balls and yes. the age of balls um, <laughs> that they needed to be when they were going to come into use and that kind of thing. That's right. She wanted to know how how, um, how umpires and referees decide on the box yes. of balls. And I checked with a match referee and learnt that and relayed it through to Haley. So you and I, Adam, have been to the Kookaburra factory. We've mm. taken the tour. We've we've seen how it was made. We I'm had kind the, of a big deal at the box factory. <laughs> <type> <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> we had, we had those years at the day night test when Shannon Gill would yeah. come out with the pink ball and tell everybody about the new manufacturing processes. Speaking of Gilly, if you love your sports nostalgia and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do. Shannon Gill's now doing a weekly segment with Jared Whateley on his show. It is brilliant, and I can highly recommend it. So we know. That when you have a Kookaburra test match ball in your hand, the writing on the side of the ball says 156 grams. It does, right? You would like you'd know that in your sleep. That you would, would. be a, that's a trivia question you would get. If a gram is twenty five dollars, <laughs> you can do the rest. <laughs> this is two thousand and one, and we're buying weed in Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> but then you're like, hang on. So there's twenty eight grams in an ounce. So then how many ounces in a kilogram? It's impossible to figure out. <laughs> Crossing from the metric to the imperial, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for people in certain states of mind. So, okay, the MCC laws say that a ball cannot weigh less than 155.9 grams. So, A, this is ballsy, so to speak, from Kookaburra. They're cutting it very fine. They're like, no, we're going to come in at point one of a gram above the minimum. Mm, mm. Like, we're not going to go to 158 just for margin for error. No, mm. no, 156, that's what we're doing. So it can weigh less for women's matches. The ball there can be 142 grams. So, And that's not because it's too heavy for tiny ladies to throw down the other end, but it's because it makes the size a little bit smaller. That's right, yeah. Where there is actually a, an issue with hand size and finger size, you can, particularly for spinners, you can impart more, get more purchase on the ball and more strength on the ball to try to spin it. Um, and if the ball's a little too large, then it's more difficult to do that. Um, I mean, I would be interested to see what would happen if they gave it away for a while. I'd, I'd be curious to see whether, I mean, the extra weight in the ball might help uh, bowl it a bit quicker, yeah, that kind of thing. It's but possible. I think that if you were going to try and inject more weight in the ball, that would be fine. But I think the size of it's important, especially mm. for finger spinners. Getting more purchase, as you yeah. described before. It's It's been part of the reason why women spinners can uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's always the difference between the pace that the quicks are bowling at. But mm. I've watched Sophie Eccleston, for example, bowl in men's cricket and 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 bowl in nets to the Lancashire men. There's no difference between what she does because her pace is the same as a male spinner because mm. she can impart more revs with the smaller ball 
that is the discipline that's closest to men's cricket, if you like. Right. You know what I'm trying to say? As, as, in, as, it as in she's a more bowling. effective bowler with the smaller ball, yeah. do you think? I, I'd expect she would be. Um, it's hard to prove this, I suppose, but mm. it, it can't hurt. Right. So a ball in women's cricket will generally be about 21 centimetres in circumference. In men's cricket, 22 and a half centimetres, so one and a half centimetres, you know, and enough to make a difference, I suppose. Hayley is not British, but has sent through a pledge in pounds because Hayley lives in London. So I'm going to assume that Hayley's doing this in wants us to think in in terms of the measurement systems in this country where there's still a, a hangover from the imperial system in every possible meaning yes. of that phrase. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just, just reading your picture book for Winnie about the queen and her corgis <laughs> um, and what a, what, a, what a great get up and go terrific woman she was. Now, let's go imperial for this. 22.4 centimetres is the men's minimum size. What is that? That's 8.81 inches. Right. Haley's pledge was 8.81. So, the ball shall not be smaller than that in men's cricket, but it does give an upper range. This is the interesting bit here. So, a women's cricket ball could be as small as 21 centimetres, but can go to 22.5. A men's cricket ball can start at 22.4 centimetres and go to 22.9, which is ah. 9 inches on the dot. So the largest ladies' ball can still be bigger than the smallest men's ball. I'm not surprised to hear this. I've always thought this without having any anything to back it up. I've always pondered how come sometimes you can pull, pull a box out of the ball and it can be bigger. Mm. I mean, you can have a box of brand spanking new kookaburras, which yep. are the balls I played mostly with through club cricket, mm -hmm. and two next to them side by side. I always thought it was an illusion. Like you talked yourself into one ball being bigger than the other. By the sounds of things, this is perfectly well, it's fine. Not, I don't think they'd cover the range. So the range of, say, 8.81 inches to 8.88 inches, that's quite a substantial range. So I don't think, say, a kookaburra batch would vary in size that much. Right. But between the different makes. So in the kookaburra batch might vary by a millimetre, but, not, oh, I but see. not by 10 millimetres. I see. But between different makes, you do have a margin for error. So you could... Well, different seasons, right? Different batches, that kind of thing. Yeah, but Probably, like, I would imagine the manufacturing process for one company would keep them pretty consistent mm. within a margin for error of a millimetre or two. But you could have up to, what, 15 millimetres difference depending on the make of the ball and it would still be a legal, legitimate ball to use. Got it. So you could be playing men's cricket with a smaller ball than the women's match on the ground next door, depending who made the balls. But that is the 881 for Hayley Fuller. Fabulous. I'm very confident. Great clue. More ball questions from Haley in the future, I hope. Our next number is... I'm doing some work, honey. We're recording a fascinating podcast um, that the many people on the internet are very keen to listen to about the history of cricket. What, what are you doing, darling? You've got the balls there. You do have a, a bathing pool full of balls. There we are. Here we are. Ramaswamy's next up. Okay. He is, unbelievably. He's um, yeah, So actually I was waiting to start this new Ramaswamy number until we'd resolved the previous Ramaswamy <laughs> number, which took about a year and a half. So, so at last. Well, this won't. I can tell you with some certainty, this will not take a year and a half. Okay. Because I'm right. dealing with it and I have a fairly good idea what's going to happen next. All right. Well, the number is $8.90. Yep. It's in USD and the clue runs as such. This being a day of note, you'll figure it out. And with Shane Warne's untimely death and the memorial service in mind, although he is not a clue, I submit 890 
about a player whose team never lost a series he played in. Once he sportingly opted not to run a batsman out following a collision, but that was only postponing the first of many runouts in the long career of the other batsmen involved. <laughs> Mostly I'm looking for a backstory, having lived it on tape delay. I'm routinely impressed by the number of anecdotes and supplementals you guys come up with. Okay, so the message came in on March the 30th, I think. March the 31st, 2022 Okay, was the day that the pledge came in. And there's one other little bit here saying, yeah. basic assumptions. He just said that on its own. So, okay. first of all, it's a privilege to take a swing at Ramaswamy first up. Usually it's been bright. I think you've had a go first yep. up last time. Is this time. your first Ramaswamy? I think it's my first time going okay. first. All right. So, I just want to say that on the way through. It's mm-hmm. been huge for us. And I reckon I've got there, albeit with a little help from my Nerd Pledge friends. Yes. So the, the Nerd Pledge Brains Trust has done some wonderful work on a couple of the answers on this week's um, program. Yes. So our thanks go out to Sean McGiven, Pat Rogers, Glenn Finkeld and Matt May. <laughs> so I was wrong there. It's the 30th of March, 2022. Mm. That's relevant, but we're, we're not going to deal with that yet. I'm going to come back to that towards okay. the end. The meat and drink here is the run out piece, right? Who did... Uh, not get run out following a collision. Due to the bit here about basic assumptions, uh, I thought it was best to just deal with those who got run out a lot, who had a reputation of being involved in a lot of run outs. In Zamam al-Haq, Steve Waugh, the latter, I suppose, uh, I think is overstated. I think that, that bit about Steve Waugh is overplayed mm. in the conversation these days, probably partly due to the <laughs> rubble in the video that's gone viral. Mm-hmm. And in Zamam al-Haq, it wasn't so much about him running other people out as much as it was running himself out. Yeah, but even he didn't get run out that much. So part of um, when we were looking at some early stuff for this clue, I'd, I'd never actually looked at the list of who was run out the most times in yeah. Test cricket. Ricky Ponting. Rahul Dravid. Rahul Dravid second. Yeah. And they're just lots of top-order bats who played a lot of test matches. But the difference who, with those two is the sample size is the gigantic because yeah. they played so oh, that's much what I'm cricket. And so yeah. most, of, most of those in the top 20 or so have a huge sample size. And so, yeah, over time they got run out more than others. So, so basic assumptions to but me... he's not up near the top and so, neither is Steve Wall. Right, but I'm thinking who's got a reputation, yes. you know, when we're making assumptions like this. And that's where Sean McGiven, uh, the unforgiven, my fellow Edinburgh runner, came into his own. He went shopping around for those players with a reputation of being run out, and he happened upon Jeff Boycott. Now, Jeff Boycott's most well-known for the run-out involving Derek Randall at Trent Bridge, the John Arlott, oh, how tragic, uh, when, he, when, he, um, when he runs him out. I think it's first ball, wasn't it? Randall ran out without facing a delivery um, at his home ground, something like that. Pretty sure that's 1975, maybe 76, something like that. Anyway, and it can't be 75 because he, made his, ashes, he yeah. made his debut just before coming out to Australia, didn't he? Anyway, whatever it is, it's, the, the point I'm making is, is that later in his career, Boycott's career, he has this moment and, you know, there's the story about how both of them were sent out to run out Boycott. And, and Boycott's, Boycott's threatening Dennis, to run out other people. Dennis Amos. Yes. Where he, he, Amos ran him out. Anyway, there's this whole ongoing part of Boycott's career involving runouts and, and the sense that he was a selfish player. Let's go back to his debut. Trent Bridge, the same ground where he ran out Derek Randall, in 1964 against the Turing Australians. Look at the scorecard. He makes 48. Uh, he opens the batting with, fucking hell, it's Fred Titmus. Norman Preston, the wisdom great, wrote the report for this. And how's this piece on the way through? Before we get to the, the incident in question, when the two were opening, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh piloted his helicopter around the ground. So, Phil okay. the Greek... This was presumably circumnavigating Trent Bridge in his helicopter while they were playing a test match against Australia. As you do. As you do. He was, a, he was an exotic kind of guy in yeah. many ways. Mm. The moment in question must be this, though. Uh, I'll read from uh, Preston's report. Grout should have run out Titmus when Boycott 
placed Hawk to mid on, and both batsmen dashed for a quick single. Hawk dived for the ball, and in the process, knocked Titmus over from behind. Titmus was far from home when the ball landed in the wicketkeeper's gloves, but Grout let him reach the crease, and England were credited with a single. So it's a rainy draw, no big deal. Uh, the action in that series would come later on when Australia win famously at Leeds. But uh, I think where Ramaswamy wants us to go, based on the clue, is the player who ran into Titmus with Boycott down the other end, mm-hmm. and that was Wally Grout. Mm-hmm. A player who we've never really done justice to on Storytime. Talked about him once, sort of, Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. We've, we've done it in dispatches without really going into any meaningful depth. And Grout... Yeah, was an all-time wicketkeeper for Australia, one of the greats. Um, really should have changed his name to Wally Grouse. Wally Grouse. Yes. He wanted to be fully you know, appreciated in an Australian sense. Do you think Grouse is mostly a Melbourne thing? I don't know. I've always felt that way. For something grouse. to be Grouse, I think it's a... It, it is a word that has died an absolute death. It's a, undeservedly. Like, it, it has... Oh, it's grouse. In, in the manner of which you know, a grouse is a small bird that lives in a grassland, yeah. it has yeah. gone dodo sort of direction. Given it's I'm commentating on SEN gone. through the ashes and most of our listenership, I assume, are in Melbourne, can I get away with describing a shot as grouse this summer? I hope you do. <laughs> Let's try it on. Cameron Green on drive. Oh, that is a grouse, grouse shot. shot. Wally Grout was grouse. Uh, 1964 was his final <laughs> test series against England should, in England. That should be the episode title right there. <laughs> there it is. Wally Grout was grouse. Wally, Wally Grout was grouse. I've never thought about the title during a show before, but yeah. there it is. Yeah, sometimes it comes to you. So, he'd also been to England in 1961. He was known for his humour, uh, for example. Um, did you go to public school? It was put to him once in England. He goes, oh, yeah, eating and drinking. Right. Ah, oh, ah. Grouse, Wally. Uh, he was also known for the swoop of his hands. He had that style. He had that style with the way he took and, and whipped the bales off. And he was a character. And he was a mainstay in the side from 1957. Had to wait till he was 30 to make his test debut. It's worth noting. Should his have become qu- a doctor. <laughs> his Queensland colleague, Don Talon, who was there in 48 with the Invincibles and so on, uh, was the Australian wicketkeeper until that point. And he made a big impression early on, Grouse, Grouse Grout taking six catches in an innings at Johannesburg in 1957, which was the world yep. record. It's great that it can also be rhyming slang for getting out. You know, sorry, mate, you're Wally Grout. Yeah, well, you, 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 I've, uh, you know, it, it gets used for it gets used for shout, doesn't it? Uh, I, I'm not sure whether... Is it? Yeah, I know that is, um, that that was rhyming slang, you know, to get your, right. Wally, Grout, to get your Wally Grout is to get your shout at the bar. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'd like it in the cricket context. They struck on the pad, they go up and an appeal, and he's Wally Grout. <laughs> <laughs> He's salmon trout. He also took eight catches in an innings, by the way, which is the world record that I don't suppose will ever be broken. Eight catches in an innings. Not in, in ni- a test match. In 1960, in an innings. Not in a test. Though. No. In a, in a, in a first-class game? Yeah, first-class game. Okay. Yeah, sorry, just to be clarifying. Yeah, yeah, I was just watching. The sure. six was a test and, and the eight was um, playing for, for Queensland. And, yeah, kind of back in the day when keepers were keepers. You know, he had a batting average at test level of 15. He made three fifties. Batting down, typically at number eight or number nine. He did make one half century opening the batting when uh, promoted in an injury situation, but very much a, a gloveman first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Back to 1964. He was 37 by then, and he had a heart attack during the next Australian summer. But he played on, and this was a bit of a drama at the time because he said he could go to the Windies in 64, 65, and he did. They didn't win that series. We'll come back to that in a moment. And he went on to play for three more years his last test cricket was in 65-66 against England, the Ashes series at home. Uh, but, yeah, he, he just kept playing cricket after he had a really young heart attack and he was advised not to. And then, tragically, his heart 
conked out on him when he was 41 years of age. He thought he'd be fine and he, he wasn't um, and, and, he, and he passed away not long after his cricket career finished and yeah, he was really seen as the gold standard until Ian Healy for Australian wicket keepers. 51 mm. test matches, 163 catches and 24 stumpings. And the other thing here, Jeff, and you picked this up when we were discussing this number, is that I thought, I'd always just assumed, I don't know how it came into my brain, and it's certainly mentioned in his um, biographies and so on, is that he never lost a series. Every series that Wally Grout played in Australia won. And or, yeah, or Drew. Or, or sorry, they, never they were, lost. They were never defeated. Never lost. Yeah, never lost when he was when he was Australia's keeper in that really strong period uh, for the Aussies from the late 50s through to the, the mid-60s. But we've kind of got to have to debunk that, aren't we? Because it's true. He He does have a very, very successful career for Australia in terms of the team result, but that series I mentioned before in the Windies in, in early 1965, they'd lose that, don't they? Yeah, I mean, so this is, unless I'm somehow misreading this in, in some way that I can't understand, some sort of Mandela effect, alternate universe thing, he goes through almost his whole career undefeated, but then the second last series that he plays, he goes to the West Indies in 64-65, they lose two and they draw two of the first four and they yeah. win a consolation test in the fifth. And he plays in all of the matches. Yeah. So what am I missing? Why is because this was in the original clue from Ramaswamy on Good Faith? Because if you read the Crick Info profile, it says you know famously uh, Australia were never defeated during his tenure. Yeah, and, and even and even in the absence of the Crick Info profile, it's just something that's said about him. Like I can I can almost hear Richie Beno saying it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the West Indies win in Kingston in Jamaica. They draw in Port of Spain. They mm -hmm. win in Georgetown. They draw again. In Bridgetown, and then Australia win in Port of Spain to finish it off. So what? Two-one series loss. Yeah, and you know a, a consolation win when the series was already gone. So, what's going on? What are we missing? Why does everybody think that Wally Grout didn't lose that series when he definitely played in? I'm just checking his record here. All he played in Kingston, Port of Spain, Georgetown, Bridgetown. Yep. yep. It doesn't make what's sense. Going on? Anyway, um, that's his second last series for Australia. Why the number 8.90, I hear you ask, Jeff? Mm. Uh, well, in 51 test matches, he made 890 runs for uh. Australia. And why is the date relevant? The 30th of March as to when he put his uh, pledge in. Uh, that was the date of Shane Wan's memorial service, who, of course, also passed away young from a heart attack at, at 52. And, and Grout was 41. And I'm sure Grout would have loved wicket-keeping to, to Warren, which is a... Probably a nice place to leave it. And it all comes back to that act of sportsmanship when he knocked over um, Fred Titmus and he saw fit to uh, not run him out in 1964 boycotts to boot. He was not Wally Grout. That's right. By Wally Grout. Very good. And a Ramaswamy done in one. Bang. Unbelievable. Bang. That is Thank the, you, Sean McGiven. That's the first run one-shot Ramaswamy. Without, without that had. bit about boycott, there's no way I would have got the rest. No, no. Beautiful work from the Brains Trust. And I've got a couple of absolutely stonking revisits coming up that, that we've been collaboratively working on as well. So stay with us. I've got one new number for me, one for Adam to come. Mine is a Joel Emmonson, who's just had a rash of ah, numbers on the show hasn't recently. Hasn't just, yes. $2.15 in Australian currency. My clue is this number relates to something Elise Perry has never done. There's a chance she could do it in 2023, but based on current form, she may not. So I'm going to assume this is a bowling number yep. um, because current form hasn't bowled super well in the last, say, three years or so. And what hasn't she done in a bowling sense? She's never taken a hat trick in any of the formats. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a five for in T20 internationals and she's never taken 10 wickets in a test match. Hat tricks in cricket, in men's cricket, you've got 46 test hat tricks, 50 ODIs and 46 T20s. The numbers are very neat the way yeah. they line up there. Yeah. Women already have 31 in T20s. Like your measurements. 
excuse me, 8.81. 11 ODIs, hat-tricks, and, and three test hat-tricks. The Rene Farrell one we talked about the other week, Betty Wilson, of course, and the Pakistani league spinner Shaiza Khan. So that's 187 international hat-tricks all up, not 215, so I'm going to rule that out. Perry never took one. She did take a catch in Megan Shute's ODI hat-trick. So she has been involved in a hat-trick, but hasn't taken one. Five is in a T20 international, 63 for the women, 102 for the men, takes us to 165. So what about 10 wickets in a match? This is where I thought it might be, mm. in, with the based on current form bit, because she will play a test match this year, well, very soon. She hasn't been to crash up with the ball, so she probably won't be taking a 10-wicket match, but she could. It's possible. The, the possibility is there. Now, I'll caveat this answer by saying that if we go a 10 wicket match in the conventional sense as in 10 wickets or more this number wouldn't work but if we look for exactly 10 wickets in a test match hmm men's test matches players to have taken exactly 10 start with George Palmer and the daughters in 1888 and end with our favorite Prabhath Jayasuriya in goal against the Irish this year how many in total 208 how many women have done it Enid Bakewell of course Betty Wilson, of course, Julian Goswami, of course, Karen Price, Jackie Lord, and Gordon. 208 plus 6 Very is good. 214, meaning that if Elise Perry takes 10 wickets she in a test this year, she will be the 215th player oh, to do it. Centimetre perfect. Show me your workings on that. How did you realise, oh, hang on, there might be 208 tenfers in men's test cricket? How did you even work that out? Well, what the, what's the filter you ran it through? So I, I, I looked, I, I ran a, a match filter for 10 wicket plus yep. which was by date which meant that it was showing them not in order of the number of wickets and then I was reading down the wickets column and basically just got a little bit upset like my my tendencies that I need things to be neat I didn't like it that the numbers kept changing and then I thought well hang on that's an 11 that's a 12 that's a 14 and I thought well what about just the 10 just 10 what if we just refine it to and because there were too many because initially I thought well it could be this and there were about 400 or something well this is kind of you know, and I was annoyed I, 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 I was never like, would have thought to just keep it as 10 alone it's such yeah. a such, a, such an unusual way to categorise And then something. I thought maybe someone searching for that might accidentally put in 10 not realising that it was 10 flat and not 10 or more they might put 10 in in both okay. in both boxes as in the high and the low yeah. and end up with just the 10s and if you look at just the 10s there we are there we are indeed, Joel Emmonson. Thank you once more. I wonder how long to your next in the queue. Probably not too far away. He's a, he's a man who's made many pledges. Stephen Baxter, back as well, 367, 3.67, I should say, in the GBP. Now, um, this is coming to me, and it is a free hit, which we love. Nice mm -hmm. way to end the this part of the show. Another strong nerd pledge number as well, because there's so many ways to do 367, isn't there? The low-hanging fruit would be Brad Hogg's test cap number, one in Delhi in 1996, but we've done enough on Hoggy in the past, so we'll leave him be for now. Harbhajan Singh played 367 times for India, 103 tests, 236 one-day internationals, 28 T20 internationals in a career that spanned 1998. I remember his test debut against Australia uh, through to the T20 World Cup of... 2016 to think how the kind of the cricket world changed in those 18 years mm -hmm. in 2014 367 became the highest first wicket stand in list a cricket history that was for the dolphins in south african domestic cricket with Mornay, they're able to play with fins yes it's incredible it's, it's van and cameron delport who i've um uh, commentated on him from time to time in, in england domestic cricket it's a shame that he's a dolphin actually Mornay could be tuna Mornay. <laughs> 
the they they batted for the whole innings in this uh, in this match for the Dolphins against the Knights. That became a big story because it obliterated one of the Sachin records. And you know, whenever a Sachin record falls, it's um it's a it's a moment to pause mm. and reflect and sob. Um, his partnership of 331 with Rahul Dravid against New Zealand in 1999 in Hyderabad in a one-day international to that point was the highest partnership in in all of list day cricket mm-hmm. which in a way feels kind of on the low side when you when you think about how much has been played well not anymore 416 is the new uh, highest partnership in right. in this form Tamil Naidu um Last year, Bisai Sudharasan made 154, and N. Jagadeesan uh, made uh, 200 plus. I didn't get his score written down. They put on 416 in 38.3 overs, out of a final score of 506. Um, so that and, and oh yeah, the first 500. That's right. Yeah. It was also the first 500. So we're left with two other pretty good options here. A dusty old bastard. I was going to really give it the big ones around this, but it's such an uninspiring dusty old bastard that it's not worth DC's time to drop the music in. <laughs> we'll deal with him anyway. Eddie Ledbetter. He was a little leg spinner who played after the war. Seven it's seasons. Rhyming slang for the lead singer of Pearl Jam. <laughs> he's he's uh, seven seasons with Yorkshire, then two at Warwickshire. We're fairly nondescript, but he did miraculously, I think, when you look at his numbers, get called up uh, to India in 1951-52 as a replacement player. Mm. And then they got himself two test matches. Good on you, Eddie. So two wickets at 109, uh, going at 4.52 runs and over. It's quite a lick um, in 51-52 in if you're going at four and a half and over. But very final word energy, his two wickets. Polly Umriga and Vinay Mankad. Huh. That was quite nice. Go on, Eddie. So he'll always have... Well, if you always... really like polyamorous, are you polyamorous? <laughs> you are. <laughs> Just a thought. Uh, so, you know, forever on that list is cap 367. But here's what, he's, here's what makes him unique. There has never been another test cricketer for England who's made it to that level without being capped by a county. He's never been capped. He was never in his career. He wasn't capped by Yorkshire and he wasn't capped by Warwickshire, which reflects the fact that he was a, a bit player. Um, but still did play two test matches. And back to Australia to finish. And Frank Iredale. Now, whenever I see his name, I think of G Island in Super International mm. Cricket. I'm not sure if this was your jam, Jeff, around 1996, but it was certainly mine. He and Jay Halliday are the greatest opening partnership Australia ever had, I think. N Power, C Dixon, the all-rounder, D Borg, um, <laughs> names that jump out at me from my Super Nintendo days. I wasn't much of a game player, I should say. Mm-hmm. But this... And, uh, and Donkey Kong were my two games. Right. And Super Mario Brothers, number three. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I reckon I was still playing super international cricket, like after ordering those $25 bags of weed in 2001, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I can guarantee I was. Uh, back to Frank, though. Like Doc Rock from earlier in our show, he was a New South Wales right-hander. Um, he was born 29 years earlier than, than Rock was in 1867. Grew up in Surrey Hills, right. uh, where a lot of the streets are named after cricketers, like Kipak Street and so on. And not far from the cricketer's arms, of course. In 1888, he got a start for New South Wales against an Australian eleven. Slightly weird fixture when you think about it. Like we've got right. Australia versus the rest, but New South Wales against Australia? Sure, you do you. 1888. Um, he became a, became a regular in 1892-93 and got a century against Victoria at the MCG to get him going. Into the test side in 1894-95 against Stoddy's visiting MCC side. Right. Um, the inexhaustible A.E. Stoddart. Um, Iredale made 81 on Test Taboo on his home ground at the SCG. That was a thrilling Test match, Jeff. We've done this one before, where England win by 10 runs after being asked to follow on. And one of the 
three instances now in Test cricket where that's happened. So there was mm-hmm. uh, New Zealand a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, in Wellington, Calcutta, two thousand and one. Oh, sorry. Um, 81 in, in Leeds and this and there's yep. four I think all yep. time yep. this was the first of those so England go 2-0 up as they head to Adelaide uh, but Frankie gets his first time there 140 Australia have a huge win a bad finish to the series though and England um, take it 3-2 in a, in a famous victory away from home for the MCC but he made enough runs Idale to get on the trip in 1896 he makes a century at Manchester which we've spoken about before uh, in our live show before the Old Trafford Test match in, in 2019. Um, that's another thrilling finish after a follow-on uh, with Harry Trott's Australians winning by three wickets. But the reason we spoke about it was mm-hmm. Rajasinghe's debut. He makes 151 not out. There he is. 154 not out, sorry, on we Test debut uh, out of 305 in England, second innings after they were asked to follow on. Iredale made 108 out of Australia's 4-1-2. And Australia was set 125 and, and got their seven down to level the series, one all. And kind of reinforcing, it's one of those plot points on the way through that, that, that helped bolster my theory that Manchester is the best Ashes test venue. That in England and Adelaide in Australia. They're the yeah. two venues that have had disproportionately the best games, I reckon, across the, the span of time. A couple of 80s he made, uh, Frank Ida, when England were back uh, in Australia again in, in 1897, 98. Um, but um, yeah, Australia, after losing the first test, won the next four. It's a 4 1 mm-hmm. thumping. He has a poor tour of England in 1899, but Australia win 1 0 and retain the Ashes. All up, 807 runs in 14 test matches at a batting average of 36.7, okay. our number. Uh, and big off the field as well. He was the secretary of New South Wales cricket um, in his post playing career, uh, and, and he passed away at age 58 in 1926. Frank Iredale, batting average of 36.7, or you can have uh, Eddie Ledbetter, Cap. <laughs> 367 if you wish or you can have Brad Hogg or you can have a partnership in South African domestic cricket the the world is your oyster Stephen Baxter 367 there you go you have all of the options available to you never say we don't give you enough answers on Storytime if you want to send a number into Storytime very easy to do patreon.com slash the final word sign up there make an account put your number in choose how often you want to send it it's all in your control and you can be part of all of the fun stuff that we're doing on that nice corner of the internet as well as helping us continue to make this show and uh we've got a couple of revisits to look at we do now jeff you've been on the tools for these this week so i'll defer to you for the next little while the first of these is graham innes who we've met in the past 293 we had a big sort of frank Ward Frolic, well, you did, <laughs> with bonus Stork Henry in there too. Uh, Graham came back to us said, thanks for your conversation in Ep 127. I may have distracted you with the Frank Ward brouhaha, but this number is all about Clary Grimmett. It's something he did a lot of, in fact, according to Rick Finlay, more than anyone. Okay. So this, I'm going to say this off the top, Graham. This number caused me an existential crisis. It caused me a, a great deal of distress because... Because, you know, I feel strongly about Clary Grimmett. Sure. And you, I, you told the whole story of your love affair with yeah, him but weeks ago. But yeah, I mean, he's come up on pretty much every episode for about the last six weeks running, and here he is again. And, and I couldn't solve this number, and I was very upset by it because I thought, what is there about Clary Grimmett that I don't know? <laughs> um, and have, has my life been a lie? Obviously, you know, so 293 is what we were looking for. Couldn't be to do with his test wickets because 216 and so I was sure it must be like some proportion of his overall first class wickets if you applied a certain filter would be Mm -hmm. 293 right so I was looking at all kinds of things to do with that Um, what how how many wickets he took in England no that was 356 how many he took after the age of 30 that was more like 700 he's got the record in the 
Shield with 513 in 79 matches, just a lazy six and a half per match. But there was no way I could chop and dice that to make that into a 293. I almost had it with the number of test innings where he took three wickets or more. That was 28 times, not okay. 29 times. So 28, three, not 29, yeah. three. No. Yeah, I mean, would have been good. Would have been, been nice. Would have been really nice. And after probably a couple of weeks, because this goes back a, a couple of months now, this number, a couple of weeks of looking fruitlessly, eventually I was like, I, I can't figure this out. I spoke to Rick Finlay and I said, is there something that you know about Clary Grimmett doing more than anyone that would relate to 293? And he said, I don't know. Even though it's his stat that Graham's referring stat. to. He was stumped. So... I kept searching without anything coming up for the next few weeks and it wouldn't get me anywhere. And eventually I, I talked to the Nerd Pledge Brains Trust and they looked at a bunch of different things, a percentage of, of wickets that were LBW or the number of stumpings and all the rest of it and we're getting nowhere. We almost had it with the percentage of his test innings that took five wicket hauls, so 21 fivers out of 67 innings. I thought that looks very close to 29.3%, but it was 31%. And then I was like, well, what if it's his first-class version? Like how many first-class fivers out of how many first-class innings? There's no record for how many first-class innings Clary Grimmett bowled in. Oh, right. Crick Info doesn't have a record for it. And the other databases that we've used don't keep a number of bowling innings. They only keep the number of deliveries bowled by huh. a bowler. So they'll tell you how many batting innings, but not how many bowling innings in a match how across odd. a first-class career. Very odd. Which meant that I was faced with the decision. Uh, I was like, okay, 37 test matches, 79 shield matches. I've got the innings counts for those. Do I go through the remaining 132 matches of his career by hand <laughs> to find out how many times he bowled in each of them and why there is some question mark over it that means that it's not recorded on Crick Info? Did I do that? Well, yes, mostly. I've, of course I've, you did. I've, I've got about 10 to go, which I didn't quite have time to get through by the time we finished recording. But I was able to rule out it being that stat because... Once you, it would have been much quicker if I'd done the maths earlier. Once you factor in his tests and his shield games, you would need to get 237 innings from 116 matches. Which is impossible. That is mathematically impossible. Yeah. So that didn't happen. You know, there are a lot of one innings matches where it rains sure. or there's a follow on or whatever. It's the journey it is what matters. Exactly. So I, but I'm, I'm nearly finished that. I will let you know next week how many innings Clary Grimmett bowled in because I'm going to finish that um, and find out why there's this blank spot on, on Crick Info there. So just kind of despondently, we were, you know, we were chatting in the little group about how we couldn't figure out this number. And we just had one more look at something, just one more little look at something that Rick Finlay had put up. Balls bowled per test by Australians with a minimum of 20 test matches bold. Max Walker, 297. Johnny Gleeson, 303. Bill O'Reilly, 305. Leading the way, top of the pops, Clary Grimmett, 392. Not 293, 293 but 392. Graham, Graham, have you... <laughs> have you transposed have, this incorrectly? Have you transposed these figures, Graham? There, Graham... Graham, you're, you're safe. This is a safe place. You can you can you can say this honestly, but we just need to know <laughs> whether the last twelve weeks of my life <laughs> have been built around not a lie, but an innocent mistake. Graham, is it three ninety two? Because if it's three ninety two, we very firmly have an answer to your question. <laughs> what did Clary Grimmett do more of than anyone? Bowl deliveries for Australia in a Test match with three ninety two on average per match he played. Wow. What a twist at the end. <laughs>
<laughs> when you said to me we had some belting revisits, I didn't know that one might be a... Well, it thought, wouldn't be the first time. Remember no. a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, we suggested there might have been an error in the way the number was mm. tabulated and we were right. Yeah. That's there the, was, there last was the time not this that came up. Mention, uh, Wicketkeeper's number. And there was one and that was I did where there, were, where there was a gap of 50. Mm. There, uh, there, I can't remember yep. what the number was now, what it was relating yeah. to, but it was a gap of 50 that was um, added up incorrectly. So. I think I've made the accusation maybe 10 times that someone's got the number wrong, and I reckon we've been right about three. Yeah. <laughs> so it's right better here. than a DRS strike rate <laughs> for most captains anyway. All right. So that revisit is broadly speaking, still out there. We'll find out for next week. The second and I, last... I'm pretty confident that that's what the answer <laughs> is. I'm going to put that out there too. The second and last number we're going to deal with today uh, is from Bala Sivaraman, 567. Mm-hmm. Gone BB, gone at 90. That was the original clue. Mm-hmm. Barat talked about BB Nimble Car. And uh, Bala's come back to us and said a great conversation with Barat on BBN. I learned a lot. But Nibbulka passed away at 92. And by a strange alignment of stars, the player I'm referring to indirectly features in the episode, Storytime 119, through a pledge. A multi-talented man, a son of a BB, or a dirty old BB, if you please. I think he means a dusty old BB, not a dirty old BB. Oh, right, right. But I'll, I'll take the Wu-Tang reference. Sure there. thing. Yeah, we've had that a few times, accidentally, on purpose, whatever. Yep. Um, Kelly Cal- Hammond was a dirty old bastard. My but, word. But, My word. But there are many other dusty old bastards who weren't that. Yes, you yes. Tayfield, both. Just, not, not dusty, but dirty. Wally love, Hammond, love not dusty, but dirty. Yeah. In his case. Um, can't believe he's been kind of forgotten despite... It, they both did, actually. Can't believe he's uh, been kind of forgotten despite his contributions to Indian sport. I don't think he dived into the number. The key number may be done by moving a decimal on my pledge, 567. Okay, so he said it was mentioned on Storytime 119. I did listen back to the whole episode and couldn't find a link. Matt May listened to the whole episode and made a spreadsheet where he wrote down <laughs> the name of every person who was mentioned in the episode. <laughs> to try to draw some conclusion, which didn't help. And he also followed up. There was this, the mention of diving into the number. He said, what if it's about divers? What if it's about an Indian Olympic diver? Oh. Now, in that episode, I talked about the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and India have only ever had two Olympic divers who both competed at the 1964 Tokyo wow. Olympics. Uh, <laughs> Anusya Prasad and Sohan Singh competed at the Olympics. The answer is not about them, but there's a quirk that yeah, you come up with that's in story wrinkle. time. So we looked at every Indian cricketer to have died at the age of 90 or retired after 90 matches. Not there. We weren't quite sure if we were looking for the father or the son, really. Um, but eventually, eventually there was a breakthrough. What if we start with the BB? And what if that BB is Buchi Babu Naidu, who was born in 1868, rich Indian family who made a lot of money working as the kind of intermediaries for the Brits in Madras around that time. You know, got loaded, probably in both senses, who knows. And he got obsessed with cricket, but he also got very angry that Indians were not allowed into the pavilion at the Madras Cricket Club where the British had set up. So he went and built his own cricket club in Madras. And was like, all right, screw you, you know, um, rise, roar, revolt style, but in a much more conciliatory way, went and built a cricket club that Indians could play at. And he funded local teams. He bought players' kit. He sponsored players who showed promise. And he's called the father of South Indian cricket in some circles because he's, in, in many ways, he's, he's one of the most influential people who t- makes cricket an Indian game. Right. Sees it as a British game but then takes it to an Indian populace and mm-hmm. says, we're going to take this for ourselves. So... He's partly forgotten to a point. Um, you could call him a dusty old BB, Buchi Babu. And he has three sons, and all of his sons play first-class cricket. And one of his sons, Adam, is named Ramaswamy. 
Really? <laughs> Ramaswamy. Not our Ramaswamy, but the other Ramaswamy. He's got an I at the end, not a Y. We, we said before that these things have a weird way of interlinking uh-huh. these answers, don't we? Absolutely. So this Ramaswamy, not our Ramaswamy, he, allegedly at one point he plays in a schools match where his team is 50 for nine and he makes 188 not out in a partnership for the last wicket worth over 200 to win the game. I can't find a scorecard for that, so I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. But fairly rude to be denied a bannerman because the number 11 didn't get out. Yes. So it's, strictly speaking, it doesn't count. He plays first-class cricket over three decades, but because they don't have a lot of first-class status games, that's only 53 matches in the end. He's played four matches over four years before he heads off to Cambridge to study. So this is Ramaswamy, the son. Now, BB, his dad, is mad about tennis, horse riding, British things, obviously wants his son to go to an English university. So he goes to Cambridge, and, and because they've also been a big tennis family, he's really good at tennis as well. So he plays Davis Cup for India. Really? Twice. Two years running, um, and they have a couple of notable victories over other teams. He plays in Wimbledon. As well, um, during his who who were the great uh, Indian doubles pair that played in the day with Pays and uh, Bapati, Leander Pais and yeah, uh, Bapati. We we met um, a Davis Cup um, referee, um, well a couple of times now uh, around the world uh, when we've been in our travels making our um, podcast and doing various things. So um, I, I don't think India were involved in that particular tie, but yes. Pays and Bapati were, were, were an institution. Well, he, he wins a match at Wimbledon. Um, okay. but I think he gets knocked out in his second round, but you know gives a decent account of himself at Wimbledon. Has these two Davis Cup years, has a notable victory over a, a Spanish or a Portuguese pair who were pretty hot shit at the time. Uh, and then he, he ends up back in Madras after he's finished at university and, and he keeps playing cricket for Madras. He plays in a Ranji final. He plays against the touring Australians in 1936. It's not, uh, not a test match. It's a state match against the tourists. And partly on the basis of playing well in that game, he gets picked on the 1936 test tour to India. So he's 40 by the time he makes his test debut. <laughs> Um, Ramaswamy, and he plays twice. He makes 40 and 60 at Old Trafford. The 60 helps them save the match in the fourth innings against Hedley Verity. You know, nothing to sneeze at. Sure, absolutely. And he makes 29 and 41 not out at the Oval when they're getting pumped. This includes being dismissed by Jim Sims, final word royalty. Wow. May have got him out with the old Wasler. Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. Um, they lose heavily, but he his batting in the in the third innings takes them past England's score, and so they avoid an innings defeat on the basis of his undefeated 41. So, you know, he, he makes a good account of himself across his four innings, 170 runs, three dismissals, averaging 56.66. Balas Evaraman's number was 567. So if you round that up... Absolutely. 56. Absolutely. Point. Six, six. Now, the link to Story Time 19 is that Bharat talked about Baka Jilani, who played on that 1936 tour. They were teammates on that tour. And so there was a link there. And I don't know if we mentioned Kota Ramaswamy on the way through, but we may have done. And as for Gone at 90, this is the very sad end to his story, mm. the bit of it that we know anyway. So as an old man in the 1980s, when he's in his 80s, um, Ramaswamy is losing his hearing, he's... He's not enjoying his life as a, you know, becoming more incapacitated as an older man and he has this fixation that he's a he's a burden on his family. Um, he becomes very despondent and he tries to kill himself at least a couple of times. He, there's a chapter on him in David Frith's book, Silence of the Heart, about cricket suicides. And his attempts are unsuccessful, but then one evening at the age of 89, he just 
gets up, leaves his home, walks down the street and never comes back. Mm. He vanishes. He takes himself off into the the hurdy-gurdy of, of Indian street life with the intention to find a, a place and a way to die, presumably. Mm. Um, he's marked for several years as fate unknown and then given his age, he's marked as presumed dead in 1990. So was he, he was gone at 90 just about in terms of his, his age. His 90th year, I suppose. Yeah, his yeah. 90th year and also in 1990 right. when he's formally marked as... Uh, presumed dead with his fate unknown. A very rare dual international um, son of a dusty old BB and another Ramaswamy to add to our Ramaswamy bumper edition. A sad ending but a, a great answer um, and an excellent clue there from Bala Sivaraman uh, with 567 and, um, and that's our show. I'm so pleased that yeah. we solved that one. I've yeah. been I've, the Balasivaraman one has been months that I've kept coming back to it and thinking I'm going to get this. I like I don't want to ask him for another clue. <laughs> I want to get this and and finally with um, again a bit of support from our friends we've uh, we've managed to get there. It's heating up in the backyard. I, I'm sort of in the sun. You're not quite in the sun. So the moment has reached us where we where we should say goodbye. But on the way through to saying goodbye, um, a reminder at patreon.com forward slash the final word. Uh, we're going to keep making story time as difficult as this is all the way through uh, the next eight weeks, which are going to be complete and utter chaos for us. Um, if you want to be part of that, we would love it. Our patron account is what makes this show work. In the absence of that, we wouldn't be able to make as many podcasts as we do. We wouldn't be able to devote the time we do to preparing interviews and, and preparing answers and, and doing our weekly show in, in the way that we do and getting around the world and all the rest of it. So if you like this program and you, and you want to chip in, that would be brilliant. And of course, you will get access to our Discord channel. Um, we've already started the planning for our cricket trip to Edinburgh in August. Pat McKeon and I have been chatting during the week. It's going to happen. So 21 to 24 August in Edinburgh, get in touch with me sooner rather than later, uh, and we can start putting in formal plans for that and booking tickets and, and you know getting a fixture sorted and those types of things. And if you're on our Discord channel, you get brought into that lovely old world of ours. So patreon.com forward slash the final word. And as I mentioned off the top, you won't be far away from an ad-free feed if you're there as well. Yes, all of that is imminent. It's coming down the laneway. You can see the dust rising on the horizon. This has been the final word story time, 139. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and a little bit of Winifred May in the background. We'll bid you all think. Have a grass weekend. I had to go about it, write it